Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. So everybody, with, with no further ado, I'm excited to be talking today to, again, the keynote speaker for the upcoming Digital Enterprise CIO Transformation event, which, as a lot of you know that are attending, is virtual and is being keynoted by Jose Arrieta, who, as from the background that I just went through, has done a lot and is, is quite accomplished. So Jose, welcome to the podcast. I'm super pumped to, to have you here and to talk to you today. Alex, it's a pleasure to to be on. Uh, I certainly appreciate the time and I'm excited to kind of engage at uh, November 17th and 18th. So thank you for uh, thinking of me for the conference. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're, we're excited to have you and I personally am excited to have you here today. Jose, I want to start before we get into some of the stuff that you've done in your professional career, which is extremely impressive. And what I found most interesting about your background is how young you are. And as I was prepping to get a chance to talk to you, with your background and all that you've done, I would have estimated you were probably 20 years older than you than, than I think you are, which is which is quite cool because you've not only done a lot, and I can tell you've done a lot of stuff that has made a big impact, especially with your work at HHS and the stuff that you did previously on your way to that particular federal agency. So before we get there, I am curious, like I am, like I usually am with most people that I get the privilege to talk to, to learn more about your background and where you're from and what your upbringing was like. And as I understand, you grew up in Northeastern Pennsylvania. If you can take me and our listeners into what life was like, where you were born and where you ra- where you raised, what your family dynamic was like, and kind of take us all the way through till you, um, you make the decision to go to college. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, again, I honor to be on and uh, I feel a lot older than I am. So I think that the work has certainly aged me. Yeah, no, I grew up in Northeastern Pennsylvania in a town of about 1100 people. My name is Jose Luis Arrieta. I moved from Mexico. My my father was a Mexican citizen who went to high school, college and, and worked in the United States uh, and then married my mother and we we moved to Mexico. So I lived there maybe till I was like four or five. My parents separated. I actually didn't meet my father until I was 25 years old. Wow. And the day that Ron Artest ran into the stands and punched the Indiana Pacers. The malice at the palace. Is the day I met my father. Uh, and wow. uh, and so I grew up in a dirt road town with about 1,100 people. And I worked in a mine. Uh, my stepfather ran a mining company. So I... You know, once since I was 11 years old, I, I worked in a m- bunch of different roles as a laborer almost in the mine. So I can say that I've like blown the top off of a mountain um, and then <laughs> and replanted trees uh, and grass because you have to backfill when you do work like that. So I really got a firsthand understanding of the kind of business, you know, with high capital expenditures. Uh, the business grew pretty well between when I was 12 and 18. I, I left the area on a college basketball scholarship. So I, I was a all-state college basketball player. It was a, a really interesting opportunity for me to kind of play basketball, travel around the United States on an AAU team, and then play in college. And so I went to Susquehanna University, which is three hours south of Susquehanna, Pennsylvania, and, and decided to kind of play college basketball. So where I was from in Northeastern Pennsylvania, there's not a lot of stuff going on, uh, really good people. It's a very friendly place. You could walk through the town today and you would look at somebody and know who their parents were, you know, but not a lot of, not a lot of job opportunities you know, other than kind of working in the mine. And so, you know, I used basketball as a mechanism to, to kind of leave the area. Wow, that's interesting. And I'm interested to hear more about meeting up with your father so late in your life. So when, when you were growing up in Susquehanna, were, were you just, was your, was your mom the only person that was raising you or did you have influence from other people? So when we first moved back, uh, we had a number of people help us. I did have my my grandmother and my grandparents, so I lived with them for a period of time. Uh, my mom remarried at some point in my life. Maybe I was like eight or nine, and then yeah. you know, and then we we live with my stepfather. I learned how to play basketball from my best friend's dad, who just happened to live you know a few blocks away. And and my town is a place where like if I woke up at three in the morning and I walked to my best friend's place, you know, the door would be open, and his mom always made cookies, so I could just walk right in and. <laughs> I didn't have a relationship with my father and my mom had put uh, his phone number in my wallet. I had a job when I was in college where I used to just ID people. I lived above a bar and uh, I found it in my wallet one day. And I'll never forget the guy tending bars name was Keith. I said, Hey Keith, I'm going to be right back. I just called my father. And then a couple of years later, I, about I moved... how, how, how old were you then? 
maybe like 21 years old or right and, before and, my 21st birthday, basically. And, and forgive me if, if you had, if you had mentioned this in the opening and you had never met your father or you met him when you were really young. I, I had no memory of him. So okay. I, I lived with him until I was four or five, but I, I didn't have a memory of him. Um, so I talked to him on the phone um, and then I moved to Washington, DC, obviously after I graduated, I was in DC for like six months and I got a federal job and at some point, they asked me to go to Woodland Hills, California, and I knew my father did import and export, and I knew he did a lot of work in and out of California. So I just called him, and I said, look, I'm going to be in California one day, uh, if you'd like to meet up. And it happened to be the day that uh, the Malice in the Palace happened. <laughs> good documentary, by the way, on Netflix. Yeah, I got to watch it. I was really but, uh, So I called him. I said, look, if you want to meet me, and that was the day, and he, and he came uh, with my brother and sister were much younger and and I met him that was the first time that I that I met my dad my my father how did, how did that go you know it's interesting sometimes when you meet someone that uh you've never met and and I mean I didn't have pictures or anything and I maybe talked to him like two or three times throughout my life so I really had no kind of idea uh, it's interesting the the nature versus nurture the things that are similar Sure, um, sure. And then the things that, you know, aren't similar because maybe the way you were raised. Uh, yep. And so I just remember uh, him drinking coffee and like kind of having his pinky out. You know, some people when they sip coffee they, and some don't. Mm-hmm. Right. And I do that. Right. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it went OK. I mean, it's good to know where you come from. You know, it builds resilience to take a risk like that. I was glad I did it. You can't go through your life not knowing where you come from. And uh, I think it's really important. And in fact, my I, I started grad school like right after I met him. And in undergrad, I never brought I never bought books. And in grad school, I bought the books and I read them twice. And I so I, it actually I think was a really good. It really helped me kind of focus uh, in my life. Actually, kind of meeting him and and kind of getting to know like where I came from. When you were having conversations with him, was there an explanation when you were growing up as to why he wasn't around, or is that something that you talked to him about when you reunited with him when you went out to California? You know, the, those stories in terms of why, I mean, I, I never had asked why, you know, he wasn't around or why he didn't call or wasn't consistent with like uh, engaging with me and my sister. I, I do have a sister that's uh, from my same father. She, uh, she's older, younger. She's younger. I'm the oldest. Yeah. So we, I, I didn't, I never asked those questions. I, I more just focused on kind of, you know, getting to know like what he did, where he came from, uh, you know, what he studied in school. The first time you meet somebody that's like your blood that you directly came from. Did you get the sense that he felt bad about not being around or was it just kind of, was the mood different? Was it more like, let's just see where we're at now and take it from there? Yeah. I mean, I think he felt bad. I mean, I, at that point, you know, I played college basketball. I was an all state basketball player you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to find a pretty good job. I was, I was about to enter grad school. You miss out on a lot in life. I think he definitely kind of felt bad about that, but you know, people are different and, you know, he had his own family. Uh, my, I have a brother and sister that are younger, uh, that he had with a, a new wife and, um, you know, they were with him. So I just tried to spend time kind of getting to know them and, and, you know, that's, it's a very surreal, surreal moment, right? Because you, you wonder about it, you know, your entire life. And then, you know, it happens and you don't really know what to expect. You have like hundreds of questions you want to ask. Uh, but in the end, it's just kind of, it's really settling in one way because you're like, wow, like, because you imagine like, you know, you're, when you don't know your father, I mean, you can imagine what you think, uh, oh, where yeah. he's from and and who he is and, 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 and when your name is like Jose Luis Arrieta and you live in like Northeastern Pennsylvania, where I'm from, uh, you know, you get picked on a lot for having a name like that. I've, I've had whole crowds like chant, you know, different uh, things, you know, or misspell my name. So, you know, it's more about just kind of knowing where you're from and, and kind of meeting sure. the person and getting a sense of what they do so that all the things that you imagined uh, no longer matter. Uh, it's actual reality. And you put the emotional stuff to the side and just try to you know, focus on kind of what's directly in front of you. I'm curious about this particular dynamic. One is because I'm a father to two boys and my oldest is three and a half, going to be three and a half. My youngest is just turned 17 months and nothing has impacted me more in my life than having children. And especially, you know, I, I, I'm sure if I had daughters, I would feel the same. But I feel a, a very big sense of responsibility as a father to young boys 
to mold them into not just kind, caring people, but to be also good men and what that means in, in, in the world that they're, that they're coming into. So I'm curious about that dynamic with you and your dad, because, you know, as I alluded to earlier, you've, you've accomplished a lot. And I can tell just by chatting with you, you're a good dude. You know, I'm, I was very blessed. My, uh, my stepdad, you know, really taught me a lot. Like I, you know, I started going to the quarry and working, you know, running like a table saw, I think when I was 11 uh, and, and a block saw, and then even being like the foreman of an actual mine, you know, where you have like, you know, men like that are, you know, in their thirties that are kind of sure. working there. My stepdad is a, you know, he's never been in the military, but he operates like he's in the military. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, screaming up the steps at like five in the morning. Are you up? It's like, yep, I'm up. <laughs> are, you, are your feet on the ground? Nope. Well, then you're not up, <laughs> you know, like. Um, so I, I was lucky to kind of have that influence in my life, which really kind of uh, prepared me um, and made me tough. I mean, you know, working 12 hours a day in a quarry when you're 12 years old, 11 years old, and obviously I didn't work the whole time. I would, you know, take a 22 and go out and shoot the, you know, the coyotes cause they kill the white-tailed deer, deer population in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So you're allowed to do it. Um, so, uh, you know, that kind of builds resiliency. It, it makes you tough. You know, I'm not afraid of anything uh, because you know nobody's ever worked in an environment like that. I mean, it's a tough environment. I've fallen through the top of buildings. Wow. Um, and then I had like, I lived in a very small community. So, you know, I had a lot of people kind of teach me different things. I mean, my high school basketball coach used to drive me uh, to play AU basketball in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is like 45 minutes from where I live two days a week, just because he thought I could play college basketball. Uh, those types of things are very formative. And when you live in a kind of small community, you know, they, they help you kind of become a man. And, and you know, I saw my mom struggle. So it, it molds you and it, it makes you want to, you know, to be better and to, to be there, you know, for your mom. So, you know, it, it is hard when you don't know kind of where you come from, but in my case, I was very lucky to kind of have some people that like help me understand like how you interact with the world and, and teach me different things that maybe you wouldn't get from another person. Uh, right. And I, and I was very close with my mom. So, and my mom is a, is a, a very strong lady. She's been through a lot. Sure. I, I love her to death. It's interesting to me as well, because you hear so many stories about, I guess a, a, a young boy or a young girl who their biological father isn't around and they end up making a lot of bad decisions and, you know, can use that as a crutch to kind of, do things that aren't going to be a positive impact on our life. And I think that's just another interesting piece about your story and your background in your professional career, you're working for different governmental agencies, which I, which I want to, which I want to get into. So I want to, I wanted just to start now you're, now you're in college and I noticed that you were a business administration major. Did you have an idea when you were graduating high school or at any point in college, what you wanted like your professional career to look like? Did you have a plan in your mind or was it you were just kind of going with the flow? And So I wanted to be a grad assistant uh, basketball coach and then I wanted to be an athletic director. That was my goal. And I knew that I could go to graduate school for free if I was a, if I was a GA. And I was very good at the game. And in fact, I coached later on in my life when I was what, in- What Washington. position did you play? Three, four, five. It really depended on the the need of the team, but- uh, you know, I could handle the ball. I could shoot. Um, and, and I, and I had good footwork, so I could play any of those positions. I, I don't think I was quick enough to play any other positions, but sure. yeah. So I, that was my goal. And, um, and so, you know, the first couple of years, you know, I, I started a bit as a freshman, you know, I, I almost transferred, I left the team and came back, you know, it was a, it's tough when you're, I was very close with my mom and my grandmother. Um, my grandmother had a huge impact on my life. She passed away right before I went to college. So anyway, I, you know, I committed fully to basketball my junior year. I, I lived there. I w- ran every morning, lifted weights every day, you know, did a thousand shots in the morning, you know, before school actually started once the, once the fall semester started and, and 9-11 happened. So I was in the gym on 9-11, you know, at the end of this two hour workout, we would do this drill where point guard who I worked out with would shoot the ball. Uh, he'd make it or miss it. I'd get the rebound, outlet it to him. And I'd have run down the court. He'd lob the ball out in front, catch it one dribble and try to dunk it. And you do 10 of those. And and like, you're never going to do 10 dunks. Like you're just, you're dog tired. The idea is to just, to just kill your body, just wear yourself out. And I, at the, right in the middle of that drill coach came in and said, Hey, a plane, you know, hit the world trade center. 
and I thought it was just like a little Cessna. In fact, I lived with my uncle uh, for a period of time when I was younger and he taught me how to fly. So we didn't even have TV. You know, I, I lived with a football player. We didn't even have television. We were like committed, you know, so I, I left. We, I ended up buying TV. I, I had a job uh, on the weekends at U-Haul and I started re- reading about terrorism finance. And, you know, I just, I had a mentor in, in college named uh, Dr. Bill Ward, who worked for a couple different different presidents and was a Marine and and like was actually a part, he was actually a soldier in the movie. We were soldiers once and young. And wow. I said to him like, Hey man, I, I think I'm going to move to Washington DC because I couldn't get into the military. I, I had some, um, I have a, some medical challenges where they won't let me in. And so I, I want to go and I want to be a part of this. Right. And so I kind of just made up my mind that I'm going to move to Washington DC. It was my junior year. Didn't really have a plan a couple months before graduating, I just called a buddy you know, that I knew had a job in DC. And I said, look, I'm going to move there. Can you get me an interview at the company you're working at? Uh, I think I can do some sales. Uh, and he said, yeah. Uh, and I drove down, you know, I had my stuff in the car. Uh, I did the interview. Uh, and the reason I wanted to work there is because I knew they provided like a really low cost, like living space for like the first six months. I, I it was a really nice section of old town, Alexandria. And they said, when can you start? And I said, tomorrow. Uh, and I was like, Hey, do you, do y'all have like a place to live? And they're like, actually like our, our smallest studio just opened up like last week and nobody rented it. Do you want it? And I said, yep. Walked in, uh, set my clothes down. And I realized like, I didn't bring hangers. I didn't bring plates. I didn't bring pans and I didn't bring a bed. I had a PlayStation, uh, the movie black Hawk down and a TV. And I just kind of slept on the floor and I, and they were like, I started work the next day. Like, so that, that's literally how I ended up uh, in DC. And it was primarily driven by um, 9-11. Watching those people fall out of the buildings was, you know, pretty impactful. And I just thought, you know, there has to be something that I can do that, you know, will positively benefit the country. And so I, I basically just changed my plan and moved to DC after that event. It wasn't necessarily about your first job in DC being a job ultimately that would be public service, but it sounds like you knew that if you just got to DC, Well, I had read an article in the Wall Street Journal. I started reading uh, the Wall Street Journal and I had read an article that uh, the U.S. federal government was trying to connect with people and bring in new people by offering free graduate school. And so I thought, well, first move there uh, and then, you know, just meet people to see what happens. Um, And so while I was in the job, I actually uh, met a woman and she's like, you know, you'd be perfect uh, to work with us at GSA. Uh, We, we, pay for grad school. Don't tell them that in the interview. <laughs> and, uh, and I went to the interview and, and they offered me two jobs. Uh, and one of them was a job kind of GSA has like a business function where they service other agencies. So it's kind of like a sales function. Uh, and the other one was a contracting job and, and the recruiter, I'll never forget. His name was Roger Kraus. I'll never forget this. He called me. I was, I was in Florida. I had taken a little vacation. And he told me, he offered me the one job. He calls me a few hours later. He's like, you're not going to believe this, but you got the other one. I said, well, what should I do? He goes, well, you're going to hate the contracting job uh, because you're an ex, you know, you're more extroverted. You're going to hate it. But he's like, if you do that, if you can tough it out for a few years, government is really controlled by federal procurement. And, and I'm telling you, you're going to hate it. It's very detail oriented, but you know, that's the one that's going to give you the ability to kind of move up. So I took it. He was right. I absolutely hated it. I tried to leave multiple times and there was a, I had a mentor named Houston Taylor, who's still an executive in government. He used to tell me, just stick with it. We don't have a lot of folks uh, like that have like your, your skill set, meaning like that can like as extroverted and can kind of like talk about these things, like off the top of his head, it's going to take six years, but once you learn it, you're going to be able to really change things. And every time I was trying to move on, maybe make more money, he would convince me to stay. Uh, at the same time, they started paying for my graduate school. They they asked me if I wanted to go and I applied and started to go to American University, which I really enjoyed. But I also uh, met a guy, you know, randomly in the building I lived in. He was sweating. He was tall. The sticker on the car outside said Susquehanna University. So I asked him like, hey, you playing ball and uh, where, you know, do you, did you go to Susquehanna University? And he's like, my girlfriend is so-and-so who I knew yeah, because I went to school with her and I'm not actually playing basketball. Um, I'm actually coaching it. I played at Georgetown, but I actually coach a team now. Do you want a team? And uh, I was like, well, I'm going to grad school. I'll be the assistant coach. And I have a roommate that I know would coach. I played a high school ball with it that also played college ball. 
Um, and I started kind of coaching this team and, you know, we were getting beat 72 to two or something once. And I just, <laughs> I just couldn't, it was a travel AAU team. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I just called a timeout. And then for the next four years, I coached a basketball team that played, you know, uh, two, two days a week, uh, three weekends a month and, and traveled the U S and we ended up, you know, we won tournaments. We first, we scored more than 10, then we won a game, then we won a tournament, then we competed in nationals. You know, my best player uh, actually played at Cornell. Uh, wow. the, the, the mom of my best play with well, the mom of one of my very good players was actually involved in the operation warp speed and the development of the, of the vaccine itself. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, worked directly for Fauci under the, the, his chief medical advisor. So when kind of the, some things hit the fan, there was a very personal relationship there. I had coached uh, her child since maybe eight years old. I had written a book for these kids on the fundamentals of basketball. Like it wasn't anything fancy, but it was a book, right? On the fundamentals I was trying to teach. You know, I probably would have left government service, but the team itself is really kind of what binded me into like this whole idea of sticking with government that between the team and, and grad school. And then that got me through like the, the years where you're just learning like the simple things that are maybe a little bit less exciting. Uh, and once you get through like four or five years and you can start to see the impact that you can have uh, as a civil servant, uh, it becomes addicting, right? It's almost like having another drink. Like it, it's tough to, it's tough to say no. And th that's kind of what kind of kept me in, in, in federal service. Throughout your career, and tell me if this is not right, it seems like the first time that you were in an IT role was your second stint with the GSA. Is that right? Uh, no, actually. My internship in college, I built uh, the state of Pennsylvania from the uh, tobacco money that was granted to the states. Uh, they invested in an insurance program called Adult Basic Insurance. And I, I never got a, a major or a minor in computer science because I didn't feel like taking the last class, which was at eight in the morning yeah. uh, during my senior year. Uh, but I actually developed a login page and a registration capability for adult basic insurance for the state of Pennsylvania and went to like local fairs. I'd work in the quarry, you know, uh, four days a week. So including Saturday, I just didn't work Sundays. And then like two days a week. Uh, I would go to the hospital and they just gave me a computer and I designed like the actual like login pages and, and the databases to collect that information. Then we went to fairs and, and tried to get underprivileged folks to actually sign up for adult basic insurance, which is the state of Pennsylvania used the, the money that they received to provide insurance for underprivileged families, underprivileged communities. So then in government, a pure contracting role. And actually my second job, I worked at the Transportation Security Administration and I built enrollment vetting adjudication and redress systems where we would vet a couple billion people every 20 seconds in 14 different domains around the world. And we would identify terror threats using biographical insights about those individuals over 40, I think it was 45 or 48 different biographical uh, indicators. Uh, and we connected with, you know, the derogatory databases of intelligence communities around the world to ensure that, you know, folks coming into uh, the United States weren't in fact uh, terrorists. And I'll, I'll never forget this. You know, my uh, wife at the time, my wife back then was traveling to um, Bolivia, which is where she's from. And in our SCIF environment, we literally uh, had identified eight like terrorists from eight wow. different countries that were all flying to Munich. You know, I spent a lot of time kind of building out those enrollment vetting adjudication and redress systems. And, and then when I went to DHS headquarters, I did work communicating with the industrial base. And if you know about DHS, I mean, it's all about enrollment vetting adjudication and redress in multiple domains. And it's, and it's big into IT systems that do that type of work within U.S. federal law. And so those are kind of my first two experiences, uh, really kind of implementing technology and interestingly enough, you know, I, I wasn't doing the development work. I was doing kind of the visioning work, the planning work, you know, you know, mapping out kind of the workflows themselves uh, and then understanding like the dollars and cents associated with how much it costs to build some of these things. And then using my contracting knowledge, uh, which actually became extremely beneficial to structure business relationships that would incentivize the companies. So to the best we could. I mean, you never do it perfect every time, but hopefully incentivize companies so that they could drive like a high level, you know, high level outcomes in terms of what we were trying to do to identify terror threats around the world. So that was really my first deep experience in IT uh, and, and, and IT development work in my career. 
After your second stint at the GSA, how did the opportunity to go work at HHS come about? Well, it's interesting. I mean, so before my second stint at GSA, I went to Treasury and I was a small business executive and I worked directly for the deputy secretary. I started to this, take- this is, a, this is around what year? Um, probably 2014, right around, the, yeah, 2014, because my daughter okay. was born in that year. So what was interesting is that I started to realize like Bitcoin was the rage uh, at the time. And I started to realize what you could do with the underlying blockchain technology. And Treasury was yes. very interested in Bitcoin because um, dollars were being moved outside of the financial system. Like one of the major weapons of U.S. power is our ability to sanction people. But if you can move money, if you can move resources outside of the financial system, that limits that weapon. So everybody was trying to understand it, and in particular, banking regulators. And, and they saw, and then the administration at that time saw it as a national security risk. And because of my background in national security, I started to see how you could use that underlying technology to maybe redesign some of those vetting programs that I was just building. And so that was my first kind of foray into technology from a policy perspective and the impact it can have. Then I went to GSA and, and I had this idea. I wanted to actually deploy blockchain in the federal government. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it at the Treasury because the role I had at the Treasury was very much policy oriented. I was the point person for emerging technology to the National Security Council for the United States Treasury. You know, blockchain was 18th on their list of emerging tech to look at. I, I argued and argued and argued and moved it up to number one during my work there. And so I went to GSA and I wanted to actually implement it. And because I knew contracting, I took over Schedule 70, which is the largest contract vehicle in the world. We did about $20 billion in business a year with all 50 states and all, all territories in the United States through that contract vehicle. And I did a small proof of concept where I took the contracting process where you onboard a company and I automated it on a microservices layer uh, that, was, that was underpinned by a blockchain um, so that we could re reduce our audit costs. We could get people into a federal contract much quicker, you know, for a number of reasons. I spent about $150,000 on that. While we were, I was only at GSA the second time a year, HHS called me and they said, look, we have $25 million and we have this, we, when we, we spend $26 billion a year in contracts, we need a contracting guy that can run the contracting portfolio, that can oversee it, that can set the policies, but we also need to integrate all of our IT systems. We spend $26 billion a year with 20,000 companies, and we have no visibility into our expenditures. We have no understanding of who we're spending money with, what the prices paid are, what the terms and conditions are. Would you come and help us modernize our contract writing system, our acquisition planning systems, the way we plan to spend money? Were they under the impression you were going to do that via blockchain, or they just were like, tell us what you can do? They reached out. So the woman that reached out to me for the job was like, I want you to take what you did um, uh, with blockchain and with some of the microservices that you built. And I want you to see if it's applicable in this ecosystem. Uh, and so like over a period of a few months, we actually hit the ground running and we literally rebuilt all of the business process associated with how you spend a federal dollar. We, we literally built a microservices layer um, and then we created the connective tissue to actually receive data from the five contract writing systems that, that facilitate that $26 billion in spend, you know, leveraging those technologies, right? So they, they wanted that, right? And, and honestly, like if when I look back at it, you know, I, I would say a year and a half into the job, we saved about $100 million. The, right before I left the job, we, we piloted using that ecosystem to look at prices paid in terms and conditions. And we were able to literally cut our costs by about $100 million with two companies, just two companies that we did business with by just looking at the, the range of prices paid across maybe like 300 contracts across our enterprise, looking at the high price and the low price and saying, wait a second, let's like negotiate to the lowest price. We shouldn't be paying 64% more in this pocket of HHS, and we're paying 64% less in this pocket. And we were able to cut out $100 million doing that with two companies. And so transparency really helps you make uh, business decisions. It also is tough, right? I mean, you're taking an executive level middle management layer whose job is really to like oversee their portfolios, and you're knocking down all those silos. You're creating at the, at the secretary level you're creating visibility down to like how much is spent on a credit card to buy business cards for somebody. 
And so it really fundamentally has an impact on culture, right? It's a, it's a pretty intense kind of change uh, effort that, you know, people aren't ready for. And, and I don't know that I anticipated how intense that would be. Uh, the other cool thing about the, from a cultural perspective, the other cool thing about that role in HHS is I could really like pilot and test different things. So I started to, I built like a recurrent neural network with like $25,000, right? Where we were analyzing words in terms and conditions, scoring them like zero or one, you know, and, and actually, and actually trying to marry that up to prices paid so that we could get an understanding of, of how they fit together. And so it was the perfect job to kind of experiment with emerging technologies and get an understanding of how they could push the envelope. It also taught me a lot about the challenges associated with changing like a large culture like that. Like when you create transparency, some people love it and some people are really uncomfortable with it. And it's it's not always a walk in the park. And that system still exists today, I assume? Yeah, it still exists today. The uh, individual that kind of took over after I left kind of put it into like another program and and. I don't know that they're using it at scale the way that I would have used it, but it wasn't something that I could take with me when I took over the CIO yeah. job. And that's, that's probably one of the regrets that I have, you know, from my time at HHS is not being able to take it and, and do the care and feeding associated with making that, you know, kind of happen. I want to pick your brain just to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about crypto because I know you teach a course on, on crypto and blockchain. Yeah, I, I created the blockchain and cryptocurrency course at John Hopkins University, the first uh, wow. course on that. Yeah. So and I teach it. So I invest in crypto mostly because my brother in law is very excited and interested about crypto and has given me certain things over the course of this year to buy that have been, you know, pretty profitable, you know, saying I'd be stupid not to hold a position in Ethereum or things like Chainlink. And candidly, the, the, the blockchain technologies, it, the way my brain operates, it's hard for me to even understand it. But I'm curious because, you know, a lot of people are investing in crypto, probably because they're being told by someone like I am that depending on what it is, you should have some portfolio and some exposure. But then you have someone like me who semi-conservative investor and has seen really good returns on crypto this year because generally the market from the start to the end has been pretty good. I'm curious from your perspective, and you, you probably hear these questions, is there any reason why the crypto or blockchain ecosystem would slow down or, or get into a situation like the dot-com crash of the early 2000s? Is there any outside force that could kill the momentum that behind why people are so bullish on this? One of the things that I would pay attention to with cryptocurrency, and I do think that crypto assets, right? And, I, and I'm using those words for a reason. I do think that crypto assets are are going to be around and, and they're going to be kind of the future of, of commerce and, and value exchange. And I think they're going to create liquidity in data markets like we've never seen before. And I, and I mean that data markets. I think there's a couple things to watch with crypto that are really important. And, and by the way, I, I do some work for a think tank where I just look at like emerging tech and at 300 companies a year. Uh, as it relates to the national security mission space. And so, you know, I'm seeing this firsthand and, and I think this issue is being addressed. But I think right now, one of the areas that I would focus on is energy consumption. Take Bitcoin as an example. While it, it, it's kind of anonymous and, uh, and, and you certainly are empowered and, and you can kind of own uh, and kind of disintermediate the banking system, the energy source that powers the Bitcoin network is still a major kind of player from a security perspective in terms of how successful that network can be. And, and, and there are new emerging kind of uh, approaches to crypto that use way, way less power. Uh, but I think that is something that can really affect it. I think the second thing um, is, is what is truly valuable. And, and, and I'm actually doing this right now. Um, I'm actually, and I'm going to be somewhat vague about it because we're in, we're in stealth mode, uh, but, but we are looking for partners. Uh, but what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking kind of data assets, much like you'd bundle a mortgage-backed security. Uh, I'm taking data assets and I'm, and I'm creating tokens that are tied directly to data assets. What if a cryptocurrency was underpinned by graphite? What if a cryptocurrency was underpinned by graphene? What if a cryptocurrency was underpinned by a set of data that was valuable uh, and, and was valuable from a 
for purchase perspective. And, and I think that's really where the market's going to end up going, um, kind of create taking this idea of a non-fungible token and applying it to packaging data sets that actually have value. And, and I think that the, the entrepreneurs that create liquidity from um, the perspective of exchanging data are the entrepreneurs, you know, that are really going to enable uh, decentralization around the world. And I want to make one more point on this. I'm bullish on crypto. Um, I have been throughout since, you know, blockchain started. I've never been able to invest in it because of some of the work that I was doing in the federal space and the way that that could have been possibly a conflict of interest given sure. kind of the dollars that I oversaw. But I want to make this point, you know, when you think about like the United States, Right. And, and what the country was founded on, you know, individual empowerment. Right. Uh, you know, the ability to kind of to have a voice. Right. To, to 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 be able to vote. Right. That level of empowerment. And you look at some of the large scale adversarial attacks on our nation. Sure. A lot of what's happening is using kind of centralized large platforms as a way to get a message out massively to a large group of people. And I think. You know, part of the way you deal with that is education, but the other part of the way you deal with that is you go right back to your roots in the U.S. Constitution, and you individually empower people. You create agency for people, and you do that through wallets. You do that through data ownership. You do that by creating a secure mechanism where Alex Sobel can sell and buy crypto assets that are backed by something, and 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 that the platform that connects it isn't monetizing Alex Sobel's data. They're creating a monetary value for themselves because they're secure and because they're enabling trade, because they're a marketplace. And, and I, so I think that's where it's going. So, so the one thing that can really bring it down outside of energy is, is and, and, it, and it's completely what crypto is built for, it is, it is centralization. Um, so the, the more that it's decentralized, the more that it aligns with the values of this country, um, I think the more successful it's going to be. Uh, and there'll be some hiccups along the way. Uh, but you, you definitely want to invest in things that are, I think, in, in, in the next three years, investing in crypto assets that are tied directly to some type of asset, whether it's data, whether it's graphite, whether it's graphene, right? Uh, I think are going to, it's going to become more prevalent and more important. Is there any motivation for the federal government to slow down or try to make it more difficult to acquire crypto in general, or are we at the point right now where it's here and we just got to make sure people pay taxes on it and no one's using it for illicit purposes? You know, I, I you know, I, I've never, I've never worked in a political job. I've, I've worked in roles that were political, but I've never been a political appointee. Uh, but one of the most uh, impressive individuals that I ever worked for was a woman in the Obama administration named Sarah Bloom Raskin. And she was a, she was a bank regulator. And I didn't know anything about regulation when I started working for her. And I, and I learned some fascinating things. So from watching kind of how the regulatory community in particular looks at the banking sector and, and, and the risks that they see, I think the federal, the U.S. federal government's interest um, in kind of slowing down crypto investments is really making sure there's some store of value and there's a mechanism to protect smaller investors from large shifts in the valuation of a crypto asset, right? That's still a risk in the marketplace. It, it's, it's, it's not as well understood. It doesn't mean that you eliminate people losing money. Um, but what it means is that you make sure that there's not like a large institutional player that can fundamentally create a market and then walk away from it. So I, I think that's the first piece to understand is that the regulatory community typically doesn't want to slow things down unless they don't understand it. The, the other thing about the regulatory community that I noticed is that you know companies would come in with ideas, crypto, it could be anything. They come in with ideas and they talk to the regulatory community at Treasury when I was there. And, and I noticed that they would get very worrisome if they didn't get direct feedback from the regulator. And what I learned is that not getting feedback was a good sign and getting kind of, hey, don't do that feedback or negative feedback was a bad sign because a regulator is never going to endorse what you're doing. But if they don't understand what you're saying, they'll ask questions about it. If they do understand, they may not ask any questions, but they may also not give you a green light um, and because they don't want to provide that endorsement. And so I think that's another uh, piece of it. The last point that I'll make is that, um, you know, Xi Jinping in China, as I'm sure you know, 
uh, really kind of put the smackdown on the crypto markets. Uh, part of it is probably for because of the energy consumption. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there's conspiracy theories out there that they want to acquire Bitcoin at cheaper rates. So they come out with all these fake bans and things like that. Do you think that has anything to do with it? I think it's purely energy. I, I think if you have if you have power shortages in a country and you're using a bunch of power to power like a mining activity, um, I, I think you walk away from it. I think the other piece is is if you look back at his corruption crackdown at the beginning of his term uh, as kind of the leader of China, um, a lot of money has moved out of China, uh, leveraging cryptocurrency. Um, and 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 while they control the bit the network itself from an energy perspective, or they did, um, they didn't necessarily control the regulatory aspects of it, right? And and I think that those are the two reasons. So I don't buy into the conspiracy piece. I I, I think it's more of uh, related to those two fundamentals. But but again, I think that shows it, it's it's the and I'm not commenting on this in, in negative or positive, but it shows how. A country has its values. Mm. And when they see something that doesn't align with its values, they maybe say, hey, we're not going to engage in that business anymore. But then there's another country which kind of has values that are more about uh, the individual, individual empowerment, the creation of agency, the creation of choice. And, and they start to actually kind of enable that because that's it, it's a, a new economic system that enables uh, the values that that country believes in. Uh, so I, I, I'm very bullish on the U.S. and crypto markets uh, in the United States. And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting developments from a cryptocurrency perspective over the next two years. Lots of interesting change there. If someone was to tell you in 2014, when you first heard about Bitcoin, that at the end of 2021, it was going to be trading at 60 something thousand, would you have said no way? Are you surprised? Like to see where Bitcoin is now from where it's come, one individual Bitcoin, wh wh where's your head on that? The number is is really would would have blown me away, um, but if somebody told me that it was going to be extremely valuable and, and going to be traded and, and going to be begun to be accepted within like the financial system as a form of compensation, yeah, I would have totally I would have totally bought into that. But sixty, yeah, I mean sixty seven thousand, a hundred thousand, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have uh, foreseen that level of valuation. Do you think that there's going to be a conflict for the, let's just for purposes of the fact that we live in America, that as more crypto becomes more mainstream, whether you see companies like Visa or different organizations starting to accept different forms of crypto outside of Bitcoin, do you think that's going to harm the US dollar no. significantly? I do not. Uh, you got Fed, Fed coin on the horizon. What are we, a year away from Fed coin? I don't remember the dates. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't see it harming uh, the U.S. dollar. In fact, I think that the idea of FedCoin and uh, the fact that kind of the U.S. regulatory environment is still the regulatory environment that kind of facilitates global financial institutions. Um, I, I think it only strengthens. Uh, I think it only strengthens uh, the U.S. dollar. I, I don't I don't strengthens it as a as a form of. Uh, as a form of legal tender. I don't see it hurting it um, in any way. And here's the thing, because it strengthens the U.S. regulatory regime for banking institutions, which fundamentally is the system that the global financial industry functions on. You know, one of the things I always say, Alex, and it's a little off topic, but I think it, it's important to share. One of the things I always say when people talk about cyber attacks is, if you were a nation that, want, that wanted to attack any nation in the, in the world, would you attack the U.S. financial system? And, the, and the, the simple matter of the fact is, is the U.S. financial system is so integrated globally mm -hmm. that if you're, I don't know, make up a country and you attack it, you're probably hurting yourself and somebody else that's a friend of yours within that ecosystem. Sure. Right, because it, because it's an integrated ecosystem. Well, um, it's interesting. It's interesting you say because I want I wanted to, when these conspiracy theories came out about COVID and was it done on purpose on China? I think I asked someone on a podcast about you know it, do you think that's even remotely a possibility? I think it was on a podcast. I don't remember. And their explanation was like, well, probably not because look how much damage it did not just to the U.S. financial system, but then in turn did to their own financial system. So, but COVID is a little different. Okay. 
and I'm not saying that a nation, but I want to, I just want, there's some important differences. And I, that's where exactly well, where the I'm reason, going. the reason I mentioned that is because you bring up a very good point about generally, if you're going to do something that would attack the American financial system, you know, let's just say hypothetically like a pandemic, it's, it's not necessarily going to make your situation in your country much better. Yes. So if you attack the U.S. financial system, you most certainly, unless you're North Korea, you most certainly, and, and even if you're North Korea, I mean, they still have friends, right? They trade with China. It's going to, sure. it's definitely going to hurt China. But there's, there's an important point here that I want to kind of tease out. Hopefully the health system is different. And, and why is that? If you look at healthcare globally, 55% of global healthcare GDP, 55% is driven by the United States. Okay. 55% of global healthcare GDP is derived by the United States. In the United States, 24% of US GDP is attributable to the health sector. So we don't trade healthcare, right? So if you wanted to impact the United States in a negative manner, and you focus on disrupting the ability for the nation to deliver care, Sure, you impact 55% of global healthcare GDP, which is mostly our research dollars touching 164 nations and doing research on all these different things, but you impact 24% of US GDP. And most cyber attacks are meant, especially against the United States, to create distrust in the system of government. Sure. If government cannot ensure the health and wellness of its population, and, 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 and that part of U.S. GDP, that 24%, that doesn't connect with the rest of the world. That's very domestic. You can have a huge impact on the well-being of people because they We've can't get services. Yeah. But, but also, you know, jobs within the United States. And I think that's really an important piece and a differentiator when you think about a globalized financial system. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm just, a, I'm just a cautious investor and you have so many naysayers on crypto and then I've you go through all these cycles and it's just, it's, I just, I find it very fascinating. It's hard for me to understand it. My brain just doesn't work in a way where I can re- I couldn't explain, explain to you what blockchain is. If someone asked me, do your best to explain blockchain, I would say, well, it seems to be a way to make outdated processes more sophisticated, faster, cleaner, more, more honest. I mean, is the best way that I would possibly describe it. You've been really kind to give us a lot of time. So I, but, so I don't want to take up, take up, I could talk to you about this a lot of what we've talked about for the rest of the, for the rest of the time. I want to, I'm curious with where you're at now, because you most recent everyday job seemed to be the CIO of HHS. What What's next for you other than working with technology startups and teaching? Is there something else you're looking to accomplish? Yeah. I mean, so I left in August. Uh, I started a services firm where I do advisory work to both commercially focused and government focused uh, clients. Um, and then I started building an IOT network. To be able to connect and collect digital data from an endpoint, both human and machine, uh, and then I'm working on different ways, and we've touched on some of it in this conversation, um, to uh, create a mechanism to generate monetary value from those data assets. Wow. Uh, so I'm also working with a publicly traded company who's bringing sustain. It's called Lakito. It's, it's called Delrada. The machine is called Lakito. And it's a sensor-enabled machine, so it needs an IoT network. So it's a sensor-enabled machine that reduces carbon emissions by nine times. Uh, it extends the livelihood of the oil, gas, natural gas that you're using uh, by seven times. Um, and if you bought it, you could take something that's four by four by six, so the size of a closet, and you could replace a giant boiler uh, and the HVAC system. So if you use it for heat, you get free air conditioning. If you use it for wow. air conditioning... You get free heat. Uh, it's a 360 degree cycle that uses supercritical CO2 and high levels of compression, and it captures exhaust heat and recycles it. Um, and so I'm, I'm working on kind of bringing that to market, and I'm des- designing the uh, IoT solution that will collect the data feeds from that machine so that you'll be able to value the carbon impact that you're having on you know, the globe uh, around the world. So, and then the other thing that I found really fascinating is working on kind of addressing social determinants of health issues, which part of that is sustainable energy. Part of that is eating healthy. I've been working with one of the largest egg and dairy producers in the world who has designed a way, I'm being serious, 
They have designed a way to eliminate COVID-19 spread in chickens. That resiliency is passed to an egg. If you eat that egg, it creates that resiliency within you as a human being. Because one of the things that I believe, Alex, from a policy perspective is if you look at the United States globally, there's a reason we're a superpower. And and I'm just going to say this. I don't see certain countries that are seen as superpowers. I don't see them as superpowers because you got to have two of the following three things. You got to have at least two of them to be a superpower. You got to be able to produce surplus grain, food. What did Hitler do during World War II? He invaded Crimea because it's a breadbasket. You need to be able to produce energy that doesn't pollute the atmosphere too much. Why? Because if you overpollute the atmosphere, you're not going to have arable land. There's some countries in the world you can ask about that. They they overpollute their atmosphere and they don't have arable land. We've been very good at that in the United States. And three, you have to have a well population that's large enough to drive global demand. You got to have two of those three to be a global superpower. So I've been focusing my energy on those three markets. And truthfully, I, I'm just in a situation where I just evaluate opportunities that come my way. I invested in a telehealth startup uh, just this week. I just wired the money. Um, it's focused on autoimmune disorder and the auto and the human biome and how the human biome kind of impacts autoimmune disorder and mental health issues. And if you can well. eat well and, and you can improve your biome, you can eliminate some of those issues. You know, so I've been doing things like that. Some investments in startups, some advisory work, a teaching. I have my services firm and then building out uh, this the software layer, which I think will be really fascinating. And when we come out of stealth mode and launch it, I'm sure you'll want to hear about it. And I promise you, I'll share it with you. Good for you, man. I, I can't thank you enough for this conversation and congratulations on all the great work that you're, that you've done. And then you continue to do. I think a lot of people after they listen to this will, I assume either reach out to you or keep an eye on, uh, keep an eye on what you're doing. Fascinating conversation. And I hope we get to do it again. And for everybody who's listening November 17th to the 18th, you'll be able to hear him speak live. And obviously all that will be recorded and we'll push that out on all of our social channels. But Jose, thank you so much for the time today. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm hoping we can do a part two um, in the near future. Hey, Alex, anytime. Great questions. I actually really enjoyed this as well. <laughs> uh, you, you guys do a good job. I Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and be sure to check out our other interviews exclusively on Digital Diary. Be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. Subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.